Hello, everybody. This is The Social Gathering with Liam and Zach. What is going on, gang? It's your guy, Liam, here with Zach, my co-host, and Quinn. Your other guy. (laughs) How are you doing, Quinn? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. Quinn, you're joining us from? I'm here from Portland, Oregon, the land of the hipsters and incredibly expensive (laughs) coffee. And Fred Armisen. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Quinn, who are you? What do you do? Who the hell are well, you? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a pretty loaded question. So basically, I am the creator of a podcast called Mania. Uh, Mania believes that in tragedy and horror and the macabre, there is an inexhaustible amount of inspiration and beauty to be found. And it does this by exploring the lives and events of nefarious individuals before the 1900s. And, you know, when I'm not doing that, basically I work for a mortuary and probably one of the best ways to describe what I do is I'm kind of a mailman for dead people. So I pick up nice. bodies and yeah, it's, it's, it's very nice. Uh, um, put them where they need to go. What is your favorite kind of dead person? If you can have a favorite kind of dead person. <laughs> that, that is actually a, a very poignant question, uh, especially for us death workers. I, I certainly have an answer to it. So my favorite is bodies that have been autopsied, I, I think. They're always really messy. They're often murdered or they died in a strange place or in a strange way. So there's never there's never a, a low amount of intrigue involved with them. Hmm. Would you would you mind telling the viewers that one story that you told us um, as we were talking just before the show about the uh, guy who had a a little too many pills. Wait, wait, exciting, wait, the exciting end to his life. Yeah. Oh, okay, this guy. Yeah, so... <laughs> so basically, um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to shock your viewers too much, but as it goes in terms of death workers, we get pretty desensitized to the nature of our business quite quickly. And so it sounds horrible, but normal deaths get very boring. You know, the grandmas and the grandpas that you pick up so we find strange deaths very interesting, and everyone crowds around to see it. So one 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 time, a guy a guy came in, uh, as in a, you know a corpse was wheeled in to the place, and he had died in a very strange way. And by that, I mean that he had a a shroud over him, and despite the shroud covering him, there was a massive tent being pitched, <laughs> and of course he had died during some some very playful moments in his life perhaps on uh, a pill that starts with a V. We won't name names. how you'd want to go out, really. (laughs) Definitely with a bang. Very silent, (laughs) long, hard bang. So (laughs) so that was a a fun day and the highlight for sure. So do you get, you know, unique per se uh, bodies like that come in very often or is that more of a rare thing? I would say for us... You get about maybe one of those every three or four days. Um, mm. One one that everyone can see 
I would say a call that you get personally to go on, you get maybe one of those a week or so. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like a, a personal call? Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a, there's a crew of us, of you can call them removal technicians is that is the professional term and in history, they'd probably be called undertakers. So that's kind of gone out of fashion and we should bring so it back. Basically, we should. It's a badass it's job more, title. Come on. Of course. I mean, why wouldn't you? Um, yeah, it, I, I, I wish it was more in fashion. Uh, basically, if you get a personal call, it's your job to go over there and talk to the family. And, or if there's police, in that case, do that and take the body back to the mortuary. Um, but since there's a crew of people, chances are if there's an interesting call, you may not be the one that goes on it. So your chance of seeing the body will be when you get back to the mortuary at the end of the day or, or whatever. And perhaps they're on an embalming table, perhaps they're being prepared for cremation and you'll have an uh, opportunity to, to see that interesting spectacle then, which as I'm describing this, I'm realizing sounds like our mortuary is like a zoo of dead bodies. And we just enjoy the, the side of it, <laughs> which is, which isn't exactly the case. Um, and, and something that you explained to us was how, um, a, a lot of people have, prejudice towards what you do and the type of person that you can be in terms of mm. you know what you do for your work so explain to uh the listeners like you explained to us you know you're an actual person outside of this and this isn't everything mm. that you do right yeah well there was a and historically there was a very negative stigma with death workers i mean and it just has kind of been that way it's taboo you know you're touching the thing that takes everyone and even the families that you interact with sometimes nowadays, even though you're doing a job that desperately needs to be done, you know, you, they can't have their loved one just rotting in their home. Right. Um, right. You show up and a lot of them kind of have this animosity towards you or this, uh, this, this distaste. And you're kind of fighting to break that, that layer of distrust right away. There's all kinds of, of assumptions people make, like you're going to steal things off the body or, that you have disease covering you at all times. And yeah, it makes, it, there's a lot of strange prejudice wrapped around that. I'm not sure if I explained it the same way when we talked, but does that, does that ring familiar to you? Yeah, for sure. So who are you outside of everything that you do for work? Outside of it, I am deeply passionate about basically quarreling with our inner demons and mental illnesses and all the suffering that we go through in life and, and doing as, our, as good a job as possible as managing that and leading passionate, fulfilled lives. And so the way that I do that is through writing and um, my art form of, of storytelling. And basically through that, I try to just encourage other people to really just embrace their inner natures, whatever that may be, whatever their fulfillment will will lie and that's really who i am i would say so how would you say that your work like your professional work helps your creative work it, it was very direct you know before this i just had a, a retail job and it was kind of difficult to to feel like i deserved to say what i was saying in essence because i the horror stories i write involve a lot of graphic imagery and just like a lot of writers, you would just imagine it and say, well, that, that should be good enough. You know, the blood is red and the eyes are listless. And that sounds about mm -hmm. right. But it just, it was really bothering me. 
I hated that feeling. Like I felt like a, almost a hypocrite. So I made the decision to go out and get a job and get some life experience that would actually put some substance behind macabre stories. Basically, the first thing I could think of was getting into mortuaries or what people call funeral homes. And it's been amazing because I have this emotional and psychological and, and physical sensory, I would say, expertise in bodies and the grief and the tragedy that, that sort of surrounds them. Yeah, it's, it's been amazing, actually. So something that you uh, mentioned to us before the call is that this is something that you actually take a lot of joy and a lot of pride in. So explain that to us one more time. Yeah. Um, well, it's strange because I am I'm more of a atheist and uh, essentially I, I had a big fear of death before I got into the job. So when I got into it, that was one of my motivations as well as having a bit more substance for my writing. So that that was an opportunity for me to get as close to death as possible and really face my my fear of of the finality of just being human, which I think everyone at some point in their lives has to really come to terms with. And so after that, after I had those first few weeks where I really was struggling with it and the job was actually really horrible, um, it was somehow turned into this very therapeutic experience because it became both a metaphorical and a, a physical reality, so metaphorically handling death and physically handling death. So as in handling it well mentally. So now I take a lot of pride in the fact that I'm one of those people who is comfortable around the smells and the sights, the very distasteful sense you get, the, the adrenaline maybe when you first see a corpse and it just strikes you as just dead wrong, just horribly wrong. Just being one of those people who can walk into a cooler full of dead bodies or walk into a house with a dead body and know what to do, know how to handle it. it it's incredibly empowering because everyone dies. Yeah. And I, that's something I think we can get into as well is the whole kind of dismissal of death in society today. Like it's so taboo in a way, like no one mm -hmm. wants to talk about it. Right. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I mean, I would be careful to, to caveat that it's mostly, I think, Western societies that have right, yeah, this yeah. sort of taboo around it. I once tweeted about that. I said, wow, it just seems like it was one of my first few weeks of working on the job and I was, my emotions were running high because I felt like I'd been betrayed by society because <laughs> no one really, no one really sees the behind the curtains of mortuaries. And I think everyone should, everyone should see what it looks like inside these places. Um, and so I, emotions were running high. And so I tweeted like, wow, it's just so horrible that nobody's talking about this. Like nobody knows what it looks like. Nobody knows how these workers operate or how we feel and, and how the whole situation is with death and everyone dies. And how are we not talking about this? And I got a litany of responses of, of, you know, you're, you're a privileged man and from a Western <laughs> society it was all, all kinds of cultures that celebrate death and recognize it for what it is. And, um, yeah, I was backpedaling pretty hard after that because they were, <laughs> you know, <laughs> There are tons of cultures that celebrate it and they throw parties when somebody dies and they really do a good job of it. That's for of, sure. There's a huge meme going on right now. <laughs> right. There, there yeah. you go. What is that meme, if you guys don't mind me asking? Zach will know. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's, I don't think it's actually in New Orleans. I think it's in an African country, but um, a funeral tradition is to have like a big 
parade and basically throw a party for a funeral. And they march down the streets and basically dance while holding the coffin on their shoulders. <laughs> it's like quite like alarming to see because you can only mm-hmm. imagine that the body in the coffin is just like being tossed around all sides. Oh yeah, but it's it's, it's just worse. different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's not affecting it in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that yeah, it's just like one example of how other cultures deal with death as opposed to how we take it so seriously even though it is a serious thing like it's it's gonna happen and we have to accept it and it's not this thing that should be hidden from people and also i think um it 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 helps us appreciate life more oh absolutely memento mori that's that's kind of my my whole philosophy um yeah so i'm i'm sort of of the opinion that if i were to have my my choice of course it's everyone's subjective choice but if i were to try to steer everyone's philosophies a certain way i would err on the side of celebrating people's lives um it's hard to do that when it's a tragic death and someone dies very young but mm-hmm. when it's an expected death you know someone's in their 80s their 90s they've been on hospice let's just let's celebrate let's let's recognize them and let's let's kind of let's lean into that feeling of being sad that they're gone by celebrating that we're sad that they're gone at all, which means that they were probably a wonderful person. Um, I think that would be amazing. But yeah, as it stands in in Western societies in general, there there is this this feeling of taboo in approaching the subject of death as it, as it corresponds to our lives in the moment. So how do we how do we process the fact that we're that we're going to die and and that really every moment actually counts and all these mm-hmm. cliches that we yeah we all we all have these cliches rattling around in our brain but they're so painfully true um but you get desensitized to it you know make every moment count carpe diem it just it just is water off a duck's back you know you barely all of the hear latin it. <laughs> all of the latin yeah it's it, it's it doesn't um it rings true to people but it's difficult to actually actualize that but um when you come face to face with a body or you experience death in your life, a family member, perhaps, or friend, I think those experiences drive the messages behind those sayings and just why they're so important. Because you will die. And if you're not living a life that you're really satisfied with, um, I, I think that's one of the largest emergencies anybody could attend to, in my opinion. Yeah, of course. Um, I used to be scared to death. I... Seven years ago, maybe. Uh, but I think there's a realization that we all come to at some point in our lives where we understand that it's inevitable. No matter what you do, it's going to come. It can come at any time, at any age, at any place. And so death is one of those things where it's so unavoidable that just accepting that it's there can bring you so much peace and so much less worry in your everyday life. Mm. Mm. yeah i would agree with that completely zach how are you feeling about your mortality you doing good over there i'm i'm doing great i've actually been doing a lot of (laughs) a lot i actually think about mortality a lot and i just i did just have a family member pass away recently so it kind of it's pretty fresh in my mind Mm -hmm. um and that's something i wanted to talk to talk about as well um all these cliches that we've been talking about um, and then once when it happens, when someone close to you dies, why is it that it it feels like you, 
your sense of mortality just shoots through the roof and you realize how how vulnerable you are in those times. Mm. And then it goes away. Are you asking me as a as an expert? Because I, I see it every day. Any thoughts from yeah. anyone? <laughs> yeah, sure. Liam, do you want me to go first? Yeah. Okay. He's well, like, I have no fucking idea. What <laughs> 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 I mean, maybe this will sound a bit pessimistic, but my my general intuition is that uh, people are very self centered, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but we can't help but draw meaning from the experiences we experience. So, you know, there's people all over the world doing amazing things, skydiving, living their most wild dreams. Um, But we can watch their lives on YouTube and not take away the joy and the true motivation that they feel to do the very same thing with our own lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that correlates directly to negative experiences as well. We don't, you know, many of us are fortunate enough that we don't know what it's like, you know, to be sexually assaulted whereas some people do mm-hmm. but hearing those stories doesn't quite impart the horror of it exactly. and yeah and so with death having somebody you're really close to having that snuffed out where are those conversations going you know you, you wake up and you realize you're not going to be able to call that person ever again you're not going to be able to share a, a picture from one of your normal days with them and have them send a text back and just those little things kind of drive in the reality and it, it hits you. Um, I would say the next best thing in that scenario is actually seeing a human body. I think that that experience is pivotal in medieval times and in history in general, when plagues would strike or there would be something sweeping a, a city, perhaps warfare, death would be everywhere because they didn't have a, a great way of, of cleaning up all the bodies right away. It was not, wasn't very organized. So bodies would be in the streets. And of course you can imagine in in distant times, healthcare was much worse, so people would die more often just in general. Mm-hmm. So people had this had these touchstones in reality where I think everyone was just a bit more grounded because they had these experiences. And even if they were very young, they saw bodies. And it just it just really imparts the reality of, of the world you're living in. And we have this luxury that is a double-edged sword where if we are but it's very possible to go our whole lives without ever seeing a human corpse. And in my opinion, that is highly dysfunctional. Hmm. That's a, it's a hell of an answer compared to what I'm going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, we're going to get to topics where I don't, where I have my foot in my mouth. So don't worry about it. Yeah. It's not a common Um, test. Maybe it isn't to you guys. (laughs) I'll say this. Um, We've talked about this in past episodes. I, I I don't know if these parts have actually gone up or not, but um, I, I've also had a family member pass away relatively recently, not as recent as Zach, mm-hmm. I think, but, um, you know, within the last five years or so. And it's, it, it's kind of weird because, um, especially with that, I've been very slow to process it. I, I've never really sat down and, and taken a moment to think about it. And it's it, it's weird. It's so crazy because it's like they're not actually dead, right? It's it's right. one of those things where I think my mind is... Um, I, I mean, I've accepted it, right? I've, I've said, you know what, 
it, that sucks. That absolutely is not great. Um, it, it stinks that I can't spend time with them, you know, but, um, it, it is what it is. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. if I could bring them back, I probably would, but that's not a reality right now with the science that we have. And so, mm-hmm. um, that being said, I think it's just one of those things, uh, where it comes down to perspective and, you know, how you are able to perceive their death and kind of run through it in your head you know yeah yeah absolutely i'm a big proponent of uh the whole comparison is a thief of joy perspective mm-hmm. and so i think when we we hear people use like the buzzwords uh oh i'm processing the passing of yeah we don't really know what that means because it doesn't really have a meaning that can be applied to everybody it's everyone processes differently and while you might feel like your method of processing a death is invalidated because it doesn't manifest itself in the same way as maybe your friend or even someone in your family is processing it. That doesn't mean that you haven't or that it's taking a long time. It's just different, maybe. Yeah, it while it's it varies wildly. You know, I've had I've had families who were extremely angry i've i've seen people who go into this I'm sure you've bizarre, seen so much yeah yeah i've seen the most bizarre probably one of the most bizarre and unsettling reactions is the the compulsion to jokes and laughter when it's obvious that the person is completely torn up inside but there, there are those people who actually take it and organize the emotions extremely well and they can have a sense of humor about it that seems it seems right if that makes sense for their personality and then there's people where you look at them and you just know they're destroyed. They're absolutely shattered by this, but they are trying to laugh and trying to smile. It's extremely un- it's extremely heartbreaking and unsettling. But yeah, grief just makes like dancers of us all in terms of how we express ourselves, and it's all wildly unique. And it comes out of nowhere too. I've definitely had days in my job where I think, God, oh, you know, the experiences I had have processed them extremely well, and then I'll find myself kind of breaking down out of nowhere. I got a shopping center or in a grocery store doing something normal, just completely sidelined and and ambushed by emotions that I didn't know weren't dealt with. Right. And And it's crazy how they can just come out of nowhere without any trigger even. It just happens. Which I I actually hate that about I don't (laughs) hate it, but it's like it's so so annoying. So (laughs) <laughs> well, it's just strange to me because there's that cliche of, you know, oh, don't bottle up your emotions. And you always think, okay, come on. Who are you getting? Bottling up my I, I'm going to forget about this. Uh, I'm going to go about my life. and I'm a Coca-Cola factory over here. Like, <laughs> Right. We're fine. Put a cap on the Emotions. Uh, am I right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> am I right, fellows? Who needs him? Um, <laughs> but it, you do bottle them up. And that's what's so weird about it is that For when sure. you don't get things out, you don't talk to someone, you don't journal or whatever you need, whatever you do. And my, in my opinion, verbal expression is the most effective. It seems to like literally leave your body. I don't know if this is complete BS, but there was, an, I think, an article I read once um, about this where it's a literally bringing it out of one place of your mind and putting it to another because events that are unprocessed sit more in your unconscious mind, which is sort of in the back. And when you mm-hmm. talk about it and when you think about it and you're having a conversation, it brings it to the frontal lobe. So you're literally dragging it out of this place where you buried it and bringing it to the front of your mind. And by speaking it, you're almost like letting it go. Um, 
and I and that's a very that's very powerful imagery, obviously, and it seems true to me. Yeah, for sure. Like I, even just ignoring death, just podcasting, I've I felt so good after single every single podcast, just because I've mm-hmm. it's just been like an hour or so where I've spoken my mind, and I don't get to do right. that often, especially in these times. But yeah, yeah for sure, just course. expressing yourself is so important. Isaac, hey, I'm curious, mm-hmm. what do you mean in these times? I'd like to dive deeper on that. <laughs> oh yeah, we're in it. We're in this juicy time where this conversation is extremely relevant. So that's that's what we mean. We got a pandemic going on. I can't see my friends. I have to talk to them on the phone or FaceTime. So it's good that I can express myself even though I can't contact people hmm. directly. You know, Going back to what we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, being afraid of death per se. There's one thing that I'm afraid of, and it's not death itself, but it's being so close to death and not being able to do anything about it. So mm-hmm. we're, we're talking like, and this is going to get graphic. Um, so we're talking like bleeding out, um, like just stuff like that, like, you know, where mm-hmm. you'd be to the point where you're helpless and you can't do anything, but your brain is still 100% functioning. You get what I'm We're saying? We're getting into some interesting territory here because I know a little bit about this. And, and, and so... Really? Hmm. Well, I don't think... I don't know if I'm... I don't know if it's all true, but... <laughs> but just just imagine that. Like, you're yeah. you're so close to death, but you're still hours and hours and hours of pain away from actually dying. Mm. That's okay. what I'm scared of. That's the only oh, thing close to death. So that I'm a slow, of. Pa- a slow, painful death is what you're afraid of. Not even just that. There's a time where I went a little too deep into Reddit and saw some, uh, like cartel level stuff. Oh yeah, oh, right. I'm gonna describe it very lightly. It was a guy who, um, someone stole his head. No, nah, yeah, that's uh, a fun way of putting he, it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. Lost hey, his <laughs> lost his ability to see very fast. Okay. Um, suddenly wasn't able to use his arms or legs, and uh, oh, bro, what the hell? Yeah, are you yeah. So, so stuff like that where it's like you cannot do anything. You just gotta lie there and hope that the people doing it are merciful. Oh my. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. I feel like that is in the out the outline, you know, sections of. Things that will almost ninety nine point nine percent not happen to you. Yeah, probably but, not, man. But it's crazy that it happened it, it, to someone. I just find that it, crazy how yes. we've lost our not not us, but how humanity somehow has gotten to that point where we're doing that to other humans. It's like, mm-hmm. guys, yeah. come on. This is we're yeah. we're we're representing a whole species, and this is what All we're right. doing. We're the one civilized species, and we're killing each other. We're smart enough not to do that. We're smart enough not to do that, you know? However we were made, whatever we were made by, we were made to not do that, you know? We were made to be intellectual and have an understanding for emotions and people, you know? And then we go out and this stuff happens and other stuff along these lines. It's it's insane. 
It's absolutely yeah. insane. We should forward this to some cartels. You might, you might change their mind. <laughs> and that ninety nine point nine percent might <laughs> go down a little bit. <laughs> oh no! No, but I mean, what you're saying is it? I mean, extremely poignant. Um, I, that generally, from my job, I've derived quite a bit of cynicism for uh, the human race in general. I, t- I try not to let it affect my my general optimism with myself and my my daily going ons. But I definitely feel because you, one thing that you see with my job is you see the hell people have dug themselves into you know, with their health and their lifestyle. Um, I've been in homes before where literally there's just trash about stacked about a foot high on every single service. And by every single service, I mean every single service. And uh, it's horrible to literally drag people who have died in this state through trash to a grave. And um, you kind of just see the hell people put themselves in. So they're not torturing somebody else and they're not taking off somebody else's limbs but they've put themselves in a state in a state of such extreme depravity and suffering and decided to lie in it. And to me, that's sort of an, that's sort of analogous. You know, you have this insanely impressive mind. You have this body that can do incredible things and a short life to really take advantage of it. And here we are just mucking around in our trash. It's just, it, Yeah. I, I don't know how to reconcile it. That's the thing that I've taken away from my job is I don't know how to make sense of it and reconcile that, like the potential of the human race and the depths of its um, its tragedies, I guess. It just doesn't make sense to me. Would you even say that technology has affected that? I, I see a lot of people, and we've talked about this just a little bit uh, before the show too, but a lot of people are just on their phones. And I think... That's something that is completely blocking people from going out and doing something for humanity, something productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, through my through my platform, it's it's a tight balance because I, of course, as I get as I get more uh, more episodes out, and I do tell more stories, and more people are getting interested. I have more people to interact with, and more responsibility with social media to kind of lead the show. So I find myself using technology more often in a way that I. I would hope I don't have to. On the on the other hand, what I'm hoping I'm producing is something that inspires people to go out and do whatever they will do. Um, and I think, you know, it's just, it's strange because you would think with the internet, what would have exploded was this wealth of knowledge and inspiration for everyone to share. You could discover things that you would have never discovered before. Like just, um, just about a year ago, I, I figured out that there's actual, you can go to circus classes and train to be a circus performer in a modern setting. You don't have to go run away and get hop on a train to do it. And it's been one of the most mm-hmm. fulfilling things in my life. And it's such a simple thing. I just show up to a class two or three days a week, hop on a trapeze or some silks, train my body, do these weird maneuvers. And it's so fulfilling as somebody who usually dwells in his head as more of a writer, and you could call it intellectual. I think that term is obviously ripe with um, <laughs> sounding pretentious. But um, it's been so fulfilling and it's strange how people have sort of the opposite reaction where you have this wealth of, of inspiration, but instead you kind of get addicted to looking at it instead of doing it. Yeah. And so I think it's a great thing that you break, bring up your form of exercise is the circus, which just goes to show that being healthy and living a balanced life doesn't mean you're in the gym five days a week. 
you can exercise right. and have fun. Like it's totally possible. Absolutely. That was a huge motivation. Yeah, it's definitely my preferred way of exercising as well. Just doing what I like. Yeah, precisely. Because I, I really, I really believe that part of our, at least my responsibility, is being on top of my body and my mind, right? And mm-hmm. those two things are are not divorceable. You you can't be a, you know, if you're going to be performing at the top of of your intellectual capabilities, it's going to help to have a cardiovascular and just bodily system that's also performing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So exercise is super important, but I just found it so, so boring. And circus was amazing for that. You know, I could feel like, because circus is another art form. So being able to yeah. express yourself while you're exercising or do these really complex maneuvers on silks or trapeze, it's just so fulfilling and it's so physically difficult as well. So it's the best of both worlds, really. I can't recommend it more. How long have you been doing that? Well, I was, let's see, it'd probably be about a year coming up now, but then the the classes, of, of course, got canceled, which is really a bummer because it was, right. it was getting to that point where if, a, if COVID hadn't hit, now would be the time where I would start applying to do performances and whatnot. But right, summer. That kind of got pushed back. Yeah, yeah. And also just my skill level, because at the beginning, you can't do anything. Uh, you have to train so much. So I was just getting to that point where I was kind of intermediate. I was able to weave certain maneuvers together kind of make like a functional dance or, or a sequence, they would say. And, um, and that kind of got stolen from me. But yeah, almost a year, I would say. Do you have any thoughts, Liam, before I dive into circus talk? <laughs> Go for it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never spoken to anyone in the circus. So uh, this is a great opportunity. Um, yeah. So with you being like a lower skill level, I guess, being relatively new mm-hmm. to it, would how would that work in terms of show? So like would they have like a like their first line do one show and then maybe you got like the daytime slot or Yeah, well I, I don't know. I've never actually I never done a, a bona fide performance before. I just did all of the training for for them. Right. Um so I can tell you all about what that's like. I know uh, on the performance side of things, you basically just Usually you send in a video of you doing it or you're actually at the um, because usually the circus gyms are kind of an organization that also puts on shows. Right. Um, So the place where I train at, they also do shows. And so what you would do is probably catch one of the instructors or one of the people who heads the uh, the actual performances. And you say, hey, have the sequence that I'm working on because they have a show upcoming and they're accepting auditions. So they'd either you'd either film it and do your sequence and send them the video or you would talk to them and do it and then it's kind of just like yeah it's like the time slot it's like maybe comedians or so you go up there and you you do it for a bit and someone else comes up and then of course it can be the opposite of that where it's not segmented individual performers but you actually have you know you have you know a team of people doing it going at the same time kind of like Cirque du Soleil Mm -hmm. yeah and that's much different so I, cause I always thought that it was like, so it's, it sounds similar to how like the dance schools work. I would imagine so, but I'm not sure. Cause I've never, da- I've never done dance yeah, classes. I, I haven't either. I just, cause you hear like the ballet school of wherever. And then mm-hmm. usually that means there's a show happening. Yeah. So that, that's just I think, how I was thinking about it. Yeah. Y- you were I so quick that, um, to say not from personal experience, but y- you know, Hey, you if found- I, I, 
<laughs> I would 100% take dance lessons. Are you kidding me? It's interesting because circus also incorporates a lot of dance theory because it's all about movement and looking perfect. And um, so mm-hmm. in ballet, they tell you to point your toes. And when you're in silks and you're upside down and wrapped up in a some fabric, they tell you to point your toes. Your toes. Sorry. Yeah. Or else you just look like an idiot. Hey, it's fun to look like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> True. Liam, would you ever take dance lessons? Would I or have I? Either or. You guys want to hear my dance lessons story? Oh, yes, dude. All Absolutely. right. Okay, so here's what happened. I was, uh, I was, I was a young and I was probably 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, just kind of hanging out, doing my own thing. Um, and, uh, my mom approaches me and says, Hey, we, we're going to try something. Cause baseball really wasn't working out. I, <laughs> well, uh, what baseball is like for me is I was put in the outfield cause I wasn't good. And then in the outfield, I was like, well, I'm not good. And so I just sit down and pick flowers and stuff. And then like the one time the ball came to me, I wasn't expecting it. And then I never threw it back. So I wasn't paying attention. Anyways, baseball isn't my sport. So I decided, well, didn't decide. It was decided for me that I would be doing dance lessons. Here's how it went. Here's pretty much all I remember is that, um, we were trying to learn a dance for a song. And I think it was like dance, like it's, 2012 or something or like 2010 it was a it, it was a, it was a dance song you know i don't know if you guys have ever heard those dance songs but they're very like hoppy but they're also like not good but they're also kind of catchy <laughs> um they're mostly annoying i think yeah yeah um so uh we're working on this dance and stuff and everyone's hanging out and then we get a break this is probably like the fourth weekend i think we're meeting once every week we had a break. Uh, our sessions were like two hours long, so they were pretty strenuous. Um, and we're uh, we're hanging out during the break, and we we decided to all have a contest to see who can do the most impressive thing. And there's one girl that like does a double backflip. She's on like nine. She does a double backflip. I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay, what? Um, there's another kid that like is a he like runs up a wall and then does a backflip like. It's a lot of flips. Like, all these kids are doing <laughs> flips, even though that has nothing to do with what we're learning in school. Uh, and so, um, I'm like, you know what? This I can do this. And so, <laughs> I, I was going to do a, like, front handspring flip thing, where it's like, you just, it's like a handstand, but you continue going over, and you land on your feet. Um, it's, a hand, it's a front handspring. Yeah, so just that's a, a front handspring, yeah. yeah. I, I don't mm-hmm. know uh, the names for all this stuff. So... I was like, you know, I can, I can do this. He's like, it's not going to look as impressive as what everyone else is doing, but I, I can easily do this. So I go for it <laughs> and I go up Uh-oh. and I roll my, roll my ankle the right way. And I set my knees and I make sure that everything's all perfect for my landing. <laughs> and I go down and my feet miss the floor. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? And then I continue going down. And I hit my kneecaps right on the floor. And I, it was one of those, you sit there for a minute, you kind of process it. And I got up and while like shedding a tear in my left eye, I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm all right. 
<laughs> it's it's fine and people are like no seriously are you okay and then like a tear comes out of my right eye and i'm like i'm fine <laughs> <laughs> and then i left oh, and man. that was it did you sustain any serious injury or were your your bones just bruised no i i was i was fine but it was just like dude, i was not able to go back you know when you go through that kind of embarrassment as a child, like, no way, Jose, I was going to go back to that place. The childhood ego, man. There was once a time where I fell on my ass so hard while training that even my instructor just burst out laughing. You know, and it's their <laughs> job to, like, encourage you. And I fell so hard on the crash mat that she just starts laughing. And, of course, everyone sees that she's laughing. They're like, oh, we're allowed to laugh at this guy? <laughs> and they start Oh, no. <laughs> Yes, laugh fest. <laughs> but but it's like it's all in fun, you know, because everyone fails, yeah. and um, like you need to need to be able to laugh at yourself. It helps you get back up and do that thing that you kind of wanted to do. Um, having like a healthy sense of humor at your own silliness. Yeah, and I definitely mm-hmm. have gone through a lot of moments like that with silks because you either look really graceful, or you kind of just look like you're stumbling around up there. You don't really know what you're doing. There's not really like an in between with the silks. Um, <laughs> yeah. So every you, time you I see it, I'm like, I hope they know how to get out of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you, I mean, you just have to embrace shame essentially as a, as a beginner, yeah. with, especially with stuff like that. It's like, you're going to fall, you're going to get hurt and you're going to look like an idiot while you do it. Even when you're doing it, even when you're kind of doing it, you'll still look like an idiot. It's a great, it sounds like a great practice in not taking yourself seriously. Oh yeah, definitely. Too seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Are you afraid of like accidentally like hanging yourself doing that? <laughs> you know what? Because that'd be a major concern of mine. <laughs> how how badass would that look? You know, like tie yourself a new on accident. You say he's not afraid yeah, of just, like, Your face is turning purple and you're smiling like you're doing it on you're purpose. Like, <laughs> like this is great. Look at this. Like, look what I've never I can before. Do. <laughs> never in the history of circus performances, I'll die right in front of you. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty dark. <laughs> um, yeah i don't i don't worry about that but i definitely worry about there's all kinds of things you can dislocate and nasty oh Oh, man there's a there's a few sequences that i've had to do where so the thing with silks and instead of trapeze is like the silks don't really want to cooperate with you because they're just fabric right Mm -hmm. and so when you're up there there's certain things you can do to transfer the weight onto your legs like you can tie um we call them footlocks. So you can tie knots around your feet with using your legs. It's one of the first things you learn. So that you can stand on something instead of just holding up your weight by your arms, which is, of course, you can't do right. that for that long. Yeah. And But there's certain positions where when you're doing that or where you're getting out of the footlock, you need to rely on your arms for a certain amount of time. And there's this one sequence that you do where when you're coming out of the footlock, there's a chance of it getting tangled on your legs and you can't really get out of it on your own. <laughs> so you have to hang by your arms while you're tangled. And if you were to let go, you'd fall pretty horribly. Like you wouldn't just fall straight down, but you'd be stuck up there and like tumbling. And then you it would probably finally let go at some horrible angle. You wouldn't be able to control how you land. It'd be horrific. And that's happened to me like twice. And it's one of the <sighs> worst moments ever because you're up there and you're exhausted because you just, you're, you've been upside down, you've been holding yourself up, you've been flipping and doing all these weird things. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, 
the thing supporting my weight has just gone onto my thigh and I can't sit on it. And you have to just hang by your hands and just wait for an instructor to stack some crash mats so they can come untie you. And you've realized just how long you can hold yourself up for dear life in that moment. It it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks so bad. <laughs> this is going to be very off topic, but um, do you guys daydream? Mm. Sometimes, yeah. How, what are we talking? How, how intense are we talking here? Well, I was talking like you were talking about trapeze and then my mind mm-hmm. went to like, I, I basically just lived my whole life in a span of uh, 15 seconds. So, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and then I, I went out of it and I was like, wait, where, where am I? And then it, like, it took me a second and I was like, oh yeah. And, and it's not that I was disinterested in what you were saying. It's just like, of course, this happens all the time. Like, not not right. too much, right? But it happens more often than you think. For me, it's pretty rare, but it's it's like something is triggering a train of thought that just kind of goes. Mm. Yeah. For me, it, it's usually... I have it when something horrible has happened or I figured out that something horrible has happened. Mm. Like, have you ever been caught in a lie or you realize that you did something wrong, but you only realize it a few days later mm-hmm. um, and you're talking to somebody in the middle of that realization? I have it all the time. Uh, like people that know me well know when I realize something has gone horribly wrong because I'll just I'll pretend to respond to their conversation, but I'll just, <laughs> just stare off silently for five minutes figuring out how to solve this problem that just rose in my head. So that's how I daydream. I daydream in nightmares. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, what a blessing! Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah I can relate to that. In uh, it's not exactly daydreaming for me. Um, there was there's like something that happened that I had to leave work like pretty much like pronto and mm-hmm. it, I was in this weird it was like a state of mind I'd never been in before it was like I was just like basically brushing off my boss I was like I'm, I just have to go I'm sorry and it was like hmm. I, I, at that moment I did not give a shit about my job that's a pretty badass moment it's hard well, to have that <laughs> it's sort of badass, but like in in the moment, it's not like you're being badass. It's just like you, can, it's so overwhelming that you just like lose. For me, I lost the ability to deal with work because it seemed so trivial and unimportant at the time. And most day jobs are, in a sense, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I think yeah the this like the circus that we put on where we take things seriously, they're menial. I hate that so much. My it's mm-hmm. one of my biggest pet peeves. It's one of my biggest criticisms of society in general, I think, how we put such, you know, especially like barista jobs or things like that. Or, oh, thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. Come back again. You know, like that. Like, what are you talking about? What are we doing? Baristas. Here? Am I right? <laughs> Man, yeah, baristas. Why are you being so polite? <laughs> Stop following the rule book. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, my heart goes out to those people. But it's so weird how we have these expectations of, you know, those transactions. And, you know, like the the cordiality and the politeness of it it, is it it can be it's nice but it's also kind of disgusting in another way because kind of just emblematic of like very unconscious thinking and living Mm -hmm. and and you're from portland right from around that area Mm -hmm. yeah so where where i live from uh minneapolis or minnesota even you know all of minnesota we have this thing called uh being minnesota nice right where it's like on top of already being pretty nice People are an extra level of nice to where it's almost sarcastic sometimes. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's so nice where it's like, this isn't even real. 
And so wow. then taking that and then adding it onto customer service, that's like the ultimate nice. And so it's so hard not to sound like a sarcastic asshole while I'm at work because I'm mm. trying to do the customer service, Minnesota nice, uh, and, and just be a decent person, you know, on top of those two things. And so like, just, I feel like I have to really be careful in what I'm saying and the words that I use a lot of the time, because if I even just slip up a little bit, then people will be like, like talk to my manager and then my manager will be like, dude, I know that you didn't mean any harm, but you cannot be saying that stuff. It's like innocent stuff too. It's like, um, it's just like, I think being straightforward with the customer is something that has lost all its value, but being straightforward with the customer is something that has value and like being open and honest. Like, I don't, I don't really care if it's customer service, man. Like that's something that's important that matters. And that's something that for me, um, I don't have any more in my job because we have to act a certain way with customers. Mm. Yeah. Those are the, those are the positions that I could never do. I like my job because I'm genuinely sad for the families I talk to. I genuinely understand what they're going through. And it would be horrible for me to act jovial about it, even if on the inside, since I've dealt with it so much, I'm completely okay that someone just died. You know, I'm all right with it. And I can crack jokes as soon as I leave the home. But, you know, when I'm around the family, I know how intense it is for them in that moment. And I really, really don't want to be, you know, lighthearted, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, in a setting where there's not this stake of, of considering death or something horrible that's just happened, I find it really hard to follow those rules because what you were saying is that there's value in vulnerability and vulnerability means being honest about how you're feeling and what's going on with your life. And, um, it doesn't mean you have to tell customers what's going on with your life, but <laughs> little, little things like one thing that I really appreciate about Portland is there's a lot more of that. So you'll walk up to a barista, hey, small coffee, and they'll go, and you'll say, "How are you? How are you doing today?" And they'll say, "Ah, oh, late start. Kind of had to rush out of bed. Hair's a mess, but we got through it." And that, that would is never dying. happen here. Wow, right? That's, that's really cool. Because yeah, because you just got an insight into how this person's feeling. They feel better that they kind of just you know quipped about it, and you can say, "Oh yeah, I did that too. I tripped over my dog and like, fell going down the stairs. Whatever, whatever the case is." And all of a sudden you're human and you're not customer and barista. You're human. And that's like, come on. Like that's gotta be better on every level for most mm-hmm. of these retail positions, right? Like this humanization of people rather than sort of like the objectification of what they're doing in that moment. I think it's I think it's actually like pretty sinister on a deep level when you really analyze it. Um maybe that's going too far. What do you think? I mean, my 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 weird about that. <laughs> uh no, for sure. I that's the thing I like about my day job is that I get to, I don't really have any rules and, uh, cause I work in, I'm, I'm a barista and I get to, I get to employ my own customer service and oh, yeah. no one's complained about it so far. So I think it's fine. Are you at more of like a small, uh, individually owned shop or is it more corporate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, individually owned, mm-hmm. uh, we have like five employees. Um, oh, yeah. We have locals. I know. I know. Like almost all of my customers by name. It's like, oh, and it's 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 amazing because it's like a literal like local watering hole for people that don't have families or 
are, you know, like they kind of move away from their families when they get older, downsize and kind of lose wow. touch with them a little bit. And we have like people come in every day and it's like, I'm, it's almost like I'm friends with them. It's really like the first time I felt like I've been contributing to a community dynamic. Mm. That's so important. So mm -hmm. uh, this next thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you play a little riddle. So given what you just told me, guess exactly what I was doing right before I became a courier for dead people. Are you a barista? <laughs> but guess the exact situ situation of being a barista in the context. What do you mean the context? I mean that it was literally word for word what he just said. That was my oh, job. Really? Wow. Yeah. I lived in a privately owned shop or that lived. I worked at a privately owned shop. It was like a little mom and pop shop. Um, there was just a handful of workers and I managed them. And yeah, I knew every single customer in my name. And they were, I was as much involved in their lives as they were in mine, almost to an annoying degree at the end. Yeah. Um, and I know exactly what that's like. Yeah. Sometimes I dread it a little bit, but then like you kind of take a step back and you realize like this is important to them. Yeah, it's it's not taking like energy from me. It's not making my day worse. Right. Uh, I had that up and down with that, too. Um, the alternative, of course, is like a Starbucks job, but a highly corporate. And uh, yeah. that's soul sucking sometimes. Um, oh, but yeah, it, a funny detail is that kind of as I got more and more comfortable with it, I would wear because <laughs> as, as well as being an atheist, I'm a bit of a Satanist as well. So I, <laughs> I had this shirt. That said, hail Satan and drink coffee. <laughs> and uh, the community was largely pretty Christian. So it wasn't it wasn't awesome for them, but it was pretty awesome for me. I can yeah. I have a similar story, not quite as extreme, but OK, the um, where I work is. There's a large equestrian community, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like what is in that? the country. What's it's in, equestrian? Horse, like horseback horse. riding. Oh, um, oh, interesting. Okay. So we get a lot of like uh, horse people in, and they're like in there riding stuff. And sometimes I, I have a Led Zeppelin shirt that has like a naked Jesus on the front. Oh, I love <laughs> it. I wear. And it's, I remember the first day I ever wore it, I was like, I wonder how many people are going to look at me funny for wearing this shirt. But I actually oh, have okay. more comp more compliments <laughs> oh, than I take. Okay. <laughs> yeah, criticisms. Wait, I mainly mainly people going, "Oh, you don't actually listen to them." <laughs> it's like uh, I do, but sure, man. <laughs> Maybe I'm not understanding, but what what's the connection between equestrians and naked Jesus? Yeah, what is that? Well, Come they're on, they're they're typically more posh. Ah, uh, and they're yeah, of course they own horses. They well, wouldn't like naked I, Jesus if they're posh. Come on, Liam, get with get with the program. That's that's a little unfair because my boss is also a horse person and she is like punk as punk can get. There's definitely some outliers, but I think generally yeah. people born into wealth usually are a little bit more. Zach, are you generalizing? Stuff. I am, and I'm <sighs> cancel me, cancel me where I stand. How dare you? <laughs> you're, you're being highly judgmental towards the equestrians. We're fighting for equal rights. The equestrian, r slash equestrians. Yeah, I have a, I have my fair share of, of uh, stories with posh people. Of course, I mean the, the neighborhood where I worked at, they had the luxury of a 
coffee house right in the middle of their neighborhood because it wasn't in a city. It was literally in a neighborhood and it was renovated from a house. So then the okay. neighborhood was very nice. So yeah, the customers were a little bit more highbrow, but even growing up, uh, my family couldn't afford it. But because my, my dad worked there, I was able to go to a, a private high school where the tuition was $10,000 a year. So I was this, I was this lower middle class boy, but all the other Catholic boys, cause it was a Catholic school on top of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Everyone, everyone laugh it up. <laughs> all of those boys were, they came from extremely affluent families. And there was a story of, I'll never forget it. One of my classmates, he just turned 16. He just got his driver's license. And f- as a gift for that, for that high achievement, he got um, a same year sports car that had just come out that year uh, for just getting his driver's license. It was at price. And he like learner's permit, <laughs> like just got his driver's license because in California, you can get it when you're like 16 and a half, I think. And you can just drive by yourself like right off the bat. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, oh, okay. the same here, too. It's yeah. Not here, but oh, you're in Canada. This is where you have sane laws. Uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, except for the drinking law. Hold on. You guys can drink oh, at 18 like, or 19? What? 19. That's fine. What's wrong with that? That makes sense. Yeah, we're cool. well, 18 I, in Quebec. No, 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 no. I'm not complaining about your law. I'm complaining about our law. It's like 21? Guys. Oh, right. Yeah. I was going to say, okay, dad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, you're going you're to knock the 18 year old rule of drinking. What's going on? No, it's um, like, I mean, going to, going to Germany where people can drink at 16. It's like that, that almost makes sense. If you compare that people can drive at 16 here, it's like you're right. giving them one huge responsibility and then really mm-hmm. withholding another really big responsibility. Mm-hmm. So just before we move on, I got to clear up the, the, the punchline of this story because I wouldn't tell you a story about a kid getting an expensive car. That's boring as hell. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. We totally just tangent. <laughs> no, no, no. It's totally fine. We're going to get to the, the next point. But he, what, the kicker of this story is that within the first few weeks, he totaled the car. And then, of course, oh. <laughs> of course his parents just get him literally the same car again. Mm, what? Yeah. I know. That was what blew my mind. And that, it's when I kind of lost faith in humanity just a little bit. That couldn't have just been me? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Was that actually you? Are you serious, Liam? No, like, I I wish that I I had that opportunity, you know? That would have been really cool. Yeah. Um, So, we were talking about alcohol. I think it's really, I think what's bad about the 21 role in the u.s is that it becomes fetishized you know and not in a sexual way exactly. in the traditional word of the yeah. traditional meaning of the word so you're like oh i really want to drink so of course you do illegal drinking and that becomes oh, this yeah. thing you know it's thrill it's the thrill of it and so you get kind of hooked on this feeling of doing illicit stuff and um i think in european countries where it's completely normal you get over that phase of oh i'm, I'm getting so drunk at this house party you know which gets really boring pretty fast and yep. uh, or at least it was for me and um so the, you no know, one tells you about that right no one says it's gonna be boring <laughs> yeah <laughs> you just suffer awkwardly you just find you out you're like with, oh this, this is actually isn't that fun <laughs> i just got this lame red cup with some <laughs> shitty vodka what am i <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah 
And so you kind of come out of it by the time I think you're European, like when you're 18, 19, 20, you're pretty much done with that. And in the U.S., it extends to well into your college years for a lot of youths, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a shame. It's kind of unique in Canada. It's like they it's like they give you the first year to in, in school to kind of get it together. And then. And then the floodgates are open. Mm. I think it's crazy here, though. I think it's crazy here that it's you're a legal adult at 18, right? You are officially not a minor at 18. And then you have three years just to like, just to figure stuff out. Like to drink what? water. <laughs> like that's it's the part that hydrated. that's the part that I don't get. It's like 18 is an adult. 21 is like a responsible adult. Is that what that's supposed to mean? And then, but wait, but wait, let's go back. At 16, like I mentioned, at 16, you can drive. It's just, it's and, it's a terrible system, in my opinion. And you can also it go and no catch sense. bullets at 18 in another country. So, yeah. Uh, and then, and of course, throughout all of this, everyone is going to call you kid until you're basically 25 or 26. Yeah. Yeah. So you're looked down on by other adults in society in general, and yet you garner all the taxes and responsibilities of any other functioning adult well into their 50s and 60s at the age of 21. But also, you still get that at 18 as well, for yeah. some reason. So, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And we can't afford to buy houses. <laughs> and, right. and we're destitute. What the and hell? we're depressed. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I guess now that we're you know, moving on to other topics, I just wanted to touch on something that we touched on um, a little bit before the podcast as well, which is just like societal issues. Um, like one thing that I remember talking about is, uh, and and you're, uh, you know, you work with dead people, and mm. something that we talked about was necrophilia being undermined in society and how people don't really look oh, at it as much in comparison right. to other crimes that people are committing and so would you like to you know just give us your take on that okay so this is already a spicy topic but i don't know how far you guys want to take this but i had a thought this morning that takes this conversation this specific topic to an insane just a different level of let's go for it of you know, let's dive okay all right all bets are off no so rules. we'll start we'll start <laughs> off with the right we'll start off with the first point where we were talking about how well, even pedophilia is hard to crack down on because it's such an icky topic. There's just such a huge ick factor and FBI and agents like that, uh, industries like that, not or I guess organizations like that are having trouble addressing this huge problem, which is actually like it's a huge, massive problem in the U.S. Um, and just because it's so difficult to talk about, there's so little awareness of it. I think um, it's not really properly being addressed. And so naturally, when we were talking earlier, we, we talked about, well, nobody really knows what's go, what goes behind uh, the scenes of cemeteries and funeral homes. And so are there instances of necrophilia? And the answer is, of course, it's not a, I don't think it's a huge problem. But also the issue with that is there's really no way of knowing if it's a huge problem because it's not, mm -hmm. it's not something that's reported. And Exactly. It's kind of impossible and, to report. <laughs> right. And so people who get caught, of course, are jailed or they suffer immense consequences as they should. But, um, you know, it's genuinely intriguing how much of it is going on that we don't know about. Because at a lot of funeral homes, the people that are there are alone with the bodies and there's very little 
security or management of that. And I don't think there necessarily should be just for this one problem. I'm sure it's very niche, but it's not very explored. And it's a bit horrifying to think about, actually. I'm sure some of it's going on. Yeah. So are you guys so ready many... to hear? Sorry, no, you, you, you responded. I was just going to say, there's so many like ethical questions that start to come up. Exactly. So um, this is the next I, part. Yeah, <laughs> I and, and I do have a question, but I, I really want to right. hear what you have to say first. Okay. So I was talking to my wife about it this morning, and we were, we were discussing this because I, I brought up what we were talking about. And it actually got damn interesting in a way that, so first of all, it's so, this is such a hot, this is such a bad thing to say that I'm just going to preface everyone who's about to hear my voice utter what I'm about to say. Just so I, so everyone knows, I believe necrophilia is horribly wrong. Nobody should do it, but. Yeah, yeah, you're not a bad person, but. (laughs) Okay, but we were thinking, we were talking about respect for the dead and, you know, as removal technicians we have to be very we can sometimes be very rough with bodies because when we're storing them places sometimes it's very hard to get them into certain locations sometimes we have to relocate them and it's just not efficient to treat every single body that goes through your hands like it's a like it's wrapped in gold you know mm-hmm. um it, we, we we're, we're incredibly respectful in front of the families and we do our best when we're not in front of them but the truth is of course there's a lot of rough handling in every funeral home basically when the family is not watching but the whole the whole mentality, of course, behind that is, well, they're not seeing their loved one getting shoved around or, or moved. And we're not we're not doing anything disgusting to them. We're just being, you know, efficient. Um, mm-hmm. But every nobody feels a moral onus to be as graceful in front of families as you are behind the scenes. Very few people do. Uh, I would say that's exceedingly rare. And that's, again, why this taboo topic needs to be talked about more. People need to know what goes on behind the scenes. And we need to become comfortable with that as people. But that does bring up a damn interesting ethical and moral question about necrophilia, because if it doesn't quite matter, if the, let's say in this hypothetical situation that the family will never know what's happened to this body and nobody will find out between the person who's committing the, let's say the crime and the body between those two things, nobody is feeling mental anguish over what's happened. And that is damn interesting because it's hard actually from like a philosophical standpoint to make a concrete claim that that's wrong because nobody's being hurt. That is, and that blew my mind this morning. I was in a medical ethics class and we were talking about like the rights of dead people and how we have all these laws and stuff in place to protect the deceased essentially, even though it's really not like Mm -hmm. benefiting anyone outside of emotionally right yeah i mean obviously in front of families it's extremely important to show how much respect they're being given yeah and that involves how you're holding them or handling them physically but it you know uh, what i was saying to liam is that if i were tasked with making the moral argument to somebody you know trained intellectually in a philosophical manner uh, against necrophilia, if in this hypothetical situation nobody's going to find out about it, mm-hmm. what is the moral argument? Um, it's strange, and of course everyone's knee-jerk reaction is to say, "Oh well, Quinn, it's just wrong. It's just horrible. It's disgusting. It's terrible. <laughs> Why would you ever even consider right. that?" Okay, but philosophically, it's not as simple as that, right? You you can't just say it's wrong. Yeah. As, if we were to 
there nothing would get done philosophically <laughs> if we just went on. I gotta say, man, you would be a great lawyer. You just pop up the philosophical questions and you're good. <laughs> like no one can go against you. Right. Well, it's hard because um, like what do you argue? Uh, yeah, pick, exactly. pick any the, pick any side and it's hard. It's very difficult because the corpse is obviously not incurring any damage because they're not having there's no consciousness and consciousness is where we experience suffering. Mm-hmm. Consciousness isn't there. They're not experiencing suffering. The family's not experiencing the anguish of, of seeing or knowing about that. So there's no suffering there. The person who's doing it is actually deriving pleasure from it. It's horrible enough. <laughs> and so it seems like a net positive over here. No, I'm sorry. I just had to. Well, not, <laughs> hey, not, someone's having joke. a great time. <laughs> um, but obviously, I think it's. I think my moral intuition is that it's disgusting. It's gross. It seems amoral. But I don't know how I would intellectually make an argument against that. And that's damn interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It really is. And and I guess if you're if you're the last. I guess the last defense with their body, right? That's pretty much how um, I guess you would describe mm-hmm. it. The government's not going to know even. Like, what the hell are they going to do? Right. You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's just it's just so perplexing and strange. And I, I've been thinking about it all day because I, I thought of it this morning. And I just don't even know how to, how to approach that topic. It's just one of those things where... I feel safe relying on my moral intuitions and just saying, yeah, that's just dead wrong. And I can't necessarily put it into words besides just how wrong it feels. Yeah. And I'm safe and I'm fine just sitting there. But I, as somebody who enjoys philosophy and intellectual debates, it's, I would be really interested to see how a professional would handle that question. Yeah. And it's making me curious as to how, the laws that are protecting corpses are like how they how they have any gravity to them right yeah um well i again i think there's what you're really protecting is the dynamic between the corpse and the family um you know you don't want their possessions to be stolen by people processing their bodies and you don't want there to be this anguish on the side of the family um and yeah, I think you're really protecting that relationship. Because like, I'm, I'm trying to think of the different arguments that you could use. Like you can't use the rape argument because there's no ability to consent to anything. If like, if, if you're right. not alive, there's, you can't not consent, but you can't, you also can't consent. I would say that the closest thing I could think of that seems somewhat concrete, but not really, is that you're degrading that person's memory you're disrespecting them yeah so like uh what's the word defamation uh defamation is a great word libel (laughs) (laughs) um i don't think you could use that one (laughs) no not that one um yeah it's just extreme disrespect for the dead probably as as far as it goes and i think i guess as a it's like something that's truly uniquely human uh, what do you mean? Just the, the oh, rev- that, just that reverence experience? we have for essentially a shell. Right. Because, of course, in nature, there's horrible footage of animals raping the dead bodies yeah. of animals within their species and vice, you know, in other ways around. But, um, 
yeah, with humans, once again, our consciousness is kind of a a burden of moral responsibility. And we have to do this gymnastics to figure out why we feel a certain way about these things, which um, are not abundantly clear to us. Hmm. I think one of the biggest issues with this and many other things, many other crimes, is it's like, you know, you shouldn't murder someone, right? You know that you shouldn't trespass. You know that you shouldn't fuck a body, right? Like, obviously. To be blunt. <laughs> but each, each, each time that you keep hearing that no, it sparks a little bit more. And not for me personally. Like, I have no intention to trespass mm-hmm. uh, or murder anybody or fuck a dead body. But for some people, for some reason, each time that they hear that no, it keeps giving them a little bit more curiosity the point where if they find themselves in those situations they say you know what maybe mm. because it, the situation then that they're in is so rare that they're like maybe this is my only chance you know mm. because they know that it's taboo they know that they shouldn't be doing it but if they are ever in a circumstance like that then they might go ahead with it thus why people go on murdering sprees and Thus, why people trespass and do other, th- you know, like, um, yeah, I, uh, that's all I had. Mm. I, I thought I was going to go further, but that's kind of my point. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, obviously the clear delineation between these two, the, those crimes you were talking about and necrophilia is that there's a, there's a clear moral argument for the suffering you're imposing on other people with murder and trespassing and, and theft when it comes to objects that people find highly valuable. You know, there's. People are suffering, and that's where we get our continuum of right and wrong, in my opinion. Um, so it's different, but it, it is fascinating to see how different people are wired, as what you were saying, where some people just find it, it they find it satisfying, or they don't mind that there's this, there's this moral responsibility that they're breaking. It's, yeah, we're all just wired different genetic, uh, genetically. So I don't know if this is legally sound, but you said something that kind of gave me an idea um with mm-hmm. suffering um with necrophilia you aren't necessarily causing suffering to the, the corpse but you could be to the family so there might be grounds for something there yeah absolutely there for sure that's why my caveat my my little note there was in a hypothetical where let's just say for certain the family would never find out and it stays between the the corpse and the person who did it mm-hmm. I just don't know. I don't know how to argue that. But of course, I mean, it's that's actually a very easy argument to make. If the family were to find out, it's horrible mm-hmm. because the mental anguish that they will that they will endure imagining and living with that knowledge is horrible and it, it should not be imposed. And so it's a very clear moral argument for me against that. Um, but when you take that variable out and you adjust that variable just slightly where they don't know, I don't know how to make that argument. I don't know how to go about it um, again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, coming back to reality, I'd assume that you guys have precautions to make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen, right? Yeah, of course. Um, we do. And everyone I work with is amazing. Like I said, we can be somewhat um, efficient with processing bodies, but we're all extremely respectful. And even when nobody's looking, we're very respectful. And um, we all take it very seriously. I would imagine that it's like that for most funeral homes. Because, of course, the job draws strange people to the profession, you know, very, very eccentric people, let's say. 
but we all take it from what I've seen very seriously. And there's a, there's a great comfort in that, you know, we really do take care of the the people mm-hmm. who passed away and we really do respect them. And, um, we are very careful. It's actually a very high stress job because one of a mistake, like a body being cremated on accident or, oh, a, body, boy, or yeah. a set of cremains, right. Going to the wrong place. These things happen, you know, once every few years to a funeral home and it's devastating to the business and to the mm-hmm. families. And so you're operating at this job where basically you just don't make mistakes, not big ones, at least you never do. Right. And it's just that unspoken rule. Mm. Like, no, you're not going to fuck this up. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to happen. So that feeling of walking on a tightrope is always there. And that's kind of one thing that helps keep everyone in line and being very respectful of every of everyone. Well, that explains funeral home workers a lot. <laughs> because how so? Well, just in my experience, they they're always very somber. Even when like I was I was like on the the other side of the funeral part, like holding the funeral for other people to come to. Like I was I right. wasn't like sad the whole time, but it seemed like everyone was remaining somber, no matter like how our demeanor changed. How much do you want me to shatter this <laughs> this delusion you have? Do do it. Make me smarter. Uh, it's not delusion. Uh, it's not a delusion. It's a that's a harsh word. Well, of course, I don't know because you met these people, so I have no idea. But in my experience, behind the closed doors, even though we're very respectful to each other as coworkers, it's just like any other workplace. We're cracking jokes. Mm-hmm. We're laughing. We're not, you know, the dead people aren't the butt of the joke by any means. But you know, like, yeah. <laughs> why, why would we? That's that's low. That's low hanging fruit. They can't defend themselves. Um, but we're. <laughs> <laughs> like, come this on. guy all dead and stuff you want to go out with. <laughs> right i mean between each other we're always very lighthearted and making jokes and just like at any other workplace where there's a, a warm atmosphere you know and i think what happens is as soon as we go in front of families as soon as we're interacting with the clients we know how how shit their life has been the last two weeks or three weeks or month you know? mm-hmm. we know just how horrible it's been no matter how well they're taking it, they just lost someone and they're dealing with that. So we kind of, we have these, you can call them masks or you can call them just actual recognition of their suffering and a respect for it. You know, we put those on pretty fast and we, we get into that mode of, um, it maybe it's somber. Um, but yeah, we don't want to be making jokes and being lighthearted around somebody right. who just lost someone. Yeah. Um, it's, that would be awkward and just wrong in some way. So yeah, I think we, as as death workers, we do we do have that persona that we put on because it doesn't really seem foot fitting to put on many others. Yeah, you know. And now now that I think about yeah. it more, like it's not just me that's there. Like if I'm fine, it doesn't mean that the way that they act will piss someone off that's just visiting. Right. Um. And yeah. I'm sure like there's so many clients they have that are super volatile, and they might seem in high spirits and fine in one second and snap and they're a mess. Absolutely. I mean, you hit that nail right on the head. That's exactly what it's like. So that was that whole, that whole five minutes was me just not really thinking too far in depth about that, but that's why we do these things. Well, it's natural for you to completely trust what they're showing you as their personality because you know, you're not thinking about, oh, this guy sees this stuff a thousand times in a month or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, or maybe you are, but it's hard to imagine. 
it's a genuinely strange thing. And that's kind of why gently I'm kind of more of a proponent of people dipping their toes in what this world is like. Cause if we're all thinking that our grandmother is going to be treated like a saint, you know, from the moment she leaves the home to the moment that she's cremated, it's just, it's just not how, it's just not how the world works. And it's not how mortuaries work. You know, we have to be efficient. We have to help all kinds of people all the time. And we try to be as respectful as possible, but we, we have to be fast and we have to be careful. Um, and so, yeah, I think if everyone kind of knew what this business was like, something about it just strikes me as being a little bit more healthy in terms of a perspective. For sure. And I think even just just trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes can do some good because even like without speaking as someone that's in the industry like yourself um but yeah it, like just talking to you has made me annoyed that i haven't thought about like the funeral home workers because it's honestly something i haven't thought much about um so i'm glad that i'm learning oh absolutely um it's, you know, I don't want to be that person who's like victimizing, but it's it's kind of one of those jobs that is absolutely thankless. Oh, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Um, and there's tons of retail jobs that are the same, but, you know, um, like EMTs are kind of like heroes in the eyes of a lot of families. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like people who work in the funeral home industry who do this job, it's emotionally, psychologically, and even physically very draining. Uh, you don't really get like you're not you're more of a shadow in society than anything actually kind of have to own that i think it just makes it better I feel like a bit of a badass <laughs> cool well um onto a different topic uh as we were talking before you seemed seemed keyword to be someone of internet culture and so my question for you is, what would you say is the biggest issue in internet culture today? Hmm. I would say that to to sort of borrow the argument of one of my favorite philosophers, Sam Harris, that the internet seems to put people in this mindset that's very similar to um, road rage, where, you know, I've, you've seen people when you're driving the way they like, they, you're not going fast enough, and so they're waving your their arms at you. Mm-hmm. They're just so... People get so quick to anger on the road for no reason. Yeah. But if you saw someone do something that bothered you on the street or at a cafe, you wouldn't blow up in their face. Nobody does that, right? Like very few people do. But there's just this tendency to to quick judgments and hateful thinking and animosity and assuming the worst, all those worst sides of human nature, that comes out a damn lot on the internet. And it's pretty disgusting to see. Like it's very hard to have excellent, fruitful conversation everywhere. And like Reddit and YouTube comment sections are just a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a cesspool of negativity, quick judgments, assumptions, not assuming the best in people, and just generally assuming that people are the worst and not seeing the best in them. And it just breeds it just breeds such terrible thinking. And I think because the people who are, you know, on websites like Reddit or like YouTube comment sections arguing all the time a lot, people who do that on a daily basis, I truly believe that that thinking comes out into their daily life and they're going to bring that judgmental perspective. They're going to bring that negative tendency into the real world. And that's going to impact their interactions um, just out when they're shopping, talking to retail workers, talking to other people and strangers. It's going to affect how they think and it's going to affect how they behave. So I think that is very negative. Um, I think that's the worst part of the internet, actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Something that I've noticed as a relatively new Reddit user, I think I joined like late 2018, so I'd still consider myself relatively new, is that if you don't format your posts perfectly and if you don't say the damn right oh. thing, oh. you're going to get downvoted into oblivion. Yeah. You guys know what I'm talking I'm about, so right? I'm so glad you brought this you up. What is say, this? The, like the cult of Reddit is insane. Yeah. It's ridiculous. If you don't say the perfect statement that everybody in the sub can agree with, right? then, well, either no one cares, which that's even rare by itself. It's either you get super upvoted or you're vilified. You're like negative 100. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've had that experience so many times and I thought, oh, great. I'm a writer. I'm good with words. People are going to love me on Reddit and it's going to be a great place to flourish in these very niche communities. Nope. <laughs> it's awful. Everyone <laughs> hates you. And if you are slightly opinionated about something that's a little bit iffy, like if we were to bring up this necrophilia topic (laughs) on Reddit, like imagine, even imagine, imagine what would happen. And it's just so insane. Like either there's two sides to this. I think either people are in this extreme echo chamber where they all agree with each other. They all agree with these common themes that keep showing up in whatever respective subreddit it is, or there is just this extreme judgment for these other subreddits. Like I was looking the other day and somebody, like there was this whole thread in some other random subreddit where they were just bashing the R atheist uh, section. And it was just, and as an atheist myself, like I don't judge people who are religious. Uh, I don't think I'm better than other people, but they were just talking about them. Like they're the scum of society just by existing and being there. And it was horrible to see. Didn't the, it's like, the atheist subreddit just donate a ton of water to a uh, village in Africa? <laughs> Pretty sure they did. <laughs> I, mean, I, I I wouldn't be surprised. Like, as we get a pretty bad rap, but atheists are pretty cool. I like them. I'm biased, of course. I think people get up in arms about atheism because, like the, and I might I I don't think I'm incorrect here, but I might be. But it the whole basis of that way of thinking is like kind of negative in that your belief is specifically against something as opposed to being agnostic and just not believing in anything yeah i would say that's militant atheism which you see quite common that's the you know that's more on the vein of it's kind of your responsibility to not bash but discredit um belief where you see it where it's unfounded belief i would say that's militant atheism but atheism traditionally in the true definition of the word as i've understood it is just you simply don't believe things that haven't that there isn't concrete proof for. And my favorite argument for that is that we're all atheists when it comes to Egyptian gods and Norse gods and Greek gods. Nobody really worships them anymore. There's, of course, a few out there. Um, but as a whole, nobody really regards them as legitimate. And we're all atheists in that respect. So atheists today in the modern world are usually just atheists towards that one other god, the Abrahamic god, who is a scene in Judaism, Christianity, and, mm-hmm. and Islam. And so it's just that one extra God we put on our list, like, hey, we just don't, just not this one as well. And everyone hates you for it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's the one thing. But if you were like, hey, do you believe in Ra? You know, Christians would be like, no, it's complete bullshit. What are you talking about? Yeah. And that's how we feel about the Abrahamic God. And that's it. Um, mm. So we get vilified for that because it's such a widespread belief. But really, it's, we're just very consistent, I think, in our... Um, our lack of belief. Um, so that comes across as confrontational, of course, because the majority of the population believes in the Abrahamic God. 
So that that's where you get the that's where you get the poison. I think that that comes across. Mm. Yeah. I think agnostic it can be perceived as just kind of wandering where you're, you know, maybe you were born into a certain religion or maybe you weren't, but you're just kind of wandering as, um, I, I, I guess atheism would be more like a strong, I just don't believe in anything. Yeah. Would you say that's true? Um, I would say that that's like the general understanding of it. But again, from my perspective, I think that there's just a lack of like, of clear thinking, um, not clear thinking, but just taking that next step because being agnostic is sort of that, that word also just means you just don't, you're not sure. You're on the fence. Right. And a, right. And Hmm. atheists aren't saying usually from what I can tell, atheists are never saying that God does not exist because from a philosophical standpoint, the, the, there's something, there's a concept called the burden of proof. The burden of proof means if you're saying something exists, you are the one that has to prove it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to prove that Bigfoot mm-hmm. exists in a conversation where you said, hey, Quinn, Bigfoot exists. <laughs> I don't have to prove that he doesn't exist. You have to prove to me that he exists, right? Because it's not my conversation. It's not my standpoint. Exactly. I don't have to disprove his existence. Like, I don't have to disprove that unicorns exist. Right? <laughs> How would I go about doing that? So if somebody's religious and they say God exists, it's they have the burden of proof and atheists just don't. So as far as atheism goes, we're not saying that these creatures or beings or entities don't exist. We're just saying we haven't been shown proof for it yet. And so the fact that that feels like stepping on people's toes, there's something wrong with that thinking, right? Like that should not be toe stepping. Um, just like I wouldn't expect anyone to believe um, any other unfounded fact of my life that I just come up with. Um, so. Yeah, obviously this takes a lot of like reading and listening to debates and things like that. So I don't expect the average uh, person who doesn't care to understand, you know, sort of a little bit more complex viewpoint in between agnosticism and atheism. But yeah, in my experience, atheists don't set out to say something does not exist. They just don't believe. Atheism is such a downer in conversations. (laughs) I'm just, digest- just, I'm just digesting. Silent. Damn it! Gotcha. Hmm. Um. So I, I guess this question is gonna kind of counter the first question that I asked you about internet culture, mm-hmm. but um, this is something that I encountered recently, and I had a hard time figuring out how to deal. I mean, not, it's really not that big of a deal, but, um, how do you feel about people who are maybe new to the internet or new to Reddit or Instagram or different sites Mm -hmm. and don't quite know how to, like, have you had any of those people, you know, reach out to you and, and try and say hi? And if so, how do you feel about it? Um, like people that are new to me or just new to the internet in general, like they're youngins. What do you mean? complete like pretty much like just don't know how to use a certain site don't know how to use a certain platform don't know the reasons for a platform you know i have i have terrible person to ask i've never ever come across somebody like that besides maybe like my grandma or something hmm. i've never had that experience actually um i could give you my opinion on what people i what i think people should do <laughs> with the internet <laughs> but besides that i don't really know don't have a good answer for that it's, and I, it's a 
suspiciously <laughs> specific question, right? For a reason. Um, was it you? I, I got a message. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, I got a message from somebody today. Um, from a, a, a certain place on the internet, and it was. I don't. I. I. I don't know. I. I think that there's. I guess in a sense, I'm kind of agreeing with what you're saying, where it's like, I, I think that there's a big portion of judgment that comes from certain websites when we use them. And I think a lot of that judgment came out from me today, even when I was just kind of hanging out on Reddit and I got a DM and it was from, I think it was from like travel partners or something. So I'm looking to travel in 2021, but, um, they reached out and it was like, man, you get like zero karma. You can tell that they've like never used the platform before. And like just based on the way that they're talking, but also in that moment, I I had a thought of like I was like this whole karma thing too, where it's like anybody can get popular on any given post as mm-hmm. long as it's written well, and then people who don't have karma are seen as the most scum of the internet when it comes to Reddit. Yeah, that's uh, it. Yeah. It, it was just something that surprised me. It. Just wanted to make a comment That's on That's my big beef with, with Reddit, I think, is just these this strange programmed prejudices. You know, it's not the free platform that it purports to be. It's like highly judgmental and highly encourages people to um to assume things about users. And when they're not doing that, it's very frivolous, you know. That whole community of people who like rep- they reply nice. It's like a huge thread of nice. Like, oh, we're all saying nice together. Isn't that so cool? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, okay, all right. It's like this kind of weird inside joke, you know, which is totally fine. It's it's completely harmless. But it quickly goes from being this like very innocent place where there are these stupid, frivolous inside jokes to like where you get vilified on the spot and browbeaten and people slide into your DMs telling you how much of a piece of shit you are. <laughs> And it's just like, what the <laughs> hell is happening? Like, it's so every time I dip my toe into Reddit, I get disgusted and I run away for a week. <laughs> the only so that, uh, let's uh, sorry. So I really don't want to just be completely scathing and negative because I, I believe in seeing, you know, what the good in something. And of course, the subreddits that are extremely small that are actually niche in the definition of that word where there's just a few thousand people. Those have been pretty awesome. And what I'm assuming is what Reddit was like in its uh way you know in its way back earlier days mm-hmm. um, those those places people don't care how you format something your your mods aren't going to take down your post because you didn't come up with an interesting where's title. the flare if it... <laughs> <laughs> where's the goddamn flare <laughs> exactly uh, like, the scared boys yeah, uh, yeah the, i mean it's just like, in those places people are just behaving normally oh i'm not interested in this i don't need to downvote it but maybe someone else will find it interesting so i won't downvote it and i'll just stay there i found that on the the podcast the podcasting subreddit everyone's so nice they just want to help get everyone else to where they're going and if people are interested in helping you out they don't even downvote they just leave the post it's amazing like that needs to be how reddit is everywhere else because it's going to get drowned out by upvoted posts anyways so the whole downvote feature except for like racist and sexist is kind of useless. And yeah, I just think it's, I think it's stupid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it feels like it's almost intentionally evil that they called their whole rating system karma. Like, come on. It's going to, 
when you see someone has low karma, you're going to think negatively about them just because you're throwing the word karma in there. Sometimes negative publicity is just as good as positive publicity. So, (laughs) yeah, you know, if somebody's like, hey, this guy thinks that perhaps you can make an argument for necrophilia. So (laughs) so people are going to be like, yeah, so everyone's like, I got to see this. (laughs) Yeah. But that's why. But it's so what's so like devilish about it is that somebody could just take that soundbite where I said, you know, whatever I said in like the in the defense of it. And that would be like, look, look what he said. You know, and they could just ignore that part where I had the, the preface saying, I absolutely mm-hmm. think this is horrible. Um, that happens all the time. And I don't, yeah, know, I don't know if you guys, do you guys follow people where that happens to them or they get, they, they get, well, it just happened to Joe Rogan. Oh, yeah. What did he say? Um, he was talking, I, I don't know specifically, but it was with uh, Bernie Sanders. And he was talking, uh-huh. they were talking about like the far right stuff and basically, whoever was head of Bernie Sanders campaign thing made Joe look like a, like a right wing guy or something and mm-hmm. just took like a lot of what he said out of context. Yeah. It's, that's another thing that's so tricky with the internet is now just, just how, how badly you can um, portray somebody and vilify them. And since a lot of people have their careers on the internet, you know, hopefully I'll be one of those people one day. It's it's dangerous, you know. You can have your life, yeah. your livelihood, the rug just pulled mm-hmm. out from under you, and damn, you know, it, there's not too much you can do about that. If and if you want us to take out that part or any other part during the podcast, let us know no. and we'll take it out. Yeah. Like we're not going like, to hold sweet. you against anything. Like I, we, I, like that's so we sweet of you. Want to be respectful. I, I deeply appreciate that. But I mean, like, I, I'm the same way where the whole thing about my brand is complete self-expression and a lack of censorship. Like that's why I wear makeup that I want to wear. That's why I put on costumes I want to wear. It's because I genuinely am inspired by these things and I'm not afraid of how people think about me um, when they see me like that. And in fact, I want them to see me like that to a degree. And so a part of that is just critical thinking. And part of critical thinking is coming on tricky moral situations that are not obvious like, how are we supposed to argue about topics like necrophilia if, if like, we, uh, rather to say that if we're going to argue about things like free will and human rights, then you have to be also willing to traverse these icky subjects. It's just the mm-hmm. way it is. Like, you can't have it. Uh, you can't, like, eat your cake and have it, too, you know. Um, yeah. So that's my whole opinion on it, is that even if it's icky, being consistent intellectually and and um being fierce like with your mind super important it has mm-hmm. to be discussed and- for there to be a change right what okay so we were talking earlier earlier about these issues like all these issues in the u.s involving crime and uh yeah do you do you think that therapy would be able to help with something like necrophilia where you know people are obviously if you're a necrophiliac you're not going to tell anybody because that's mm-hmm. such a looked down upon thing and on top of that you can get in trouble we should establish is it is it an illness i actually i don't know i would imagine so the thing that i would probably like is it something you should go to therapy for i think absolutely because we all know i think it's we all have that moral intuition that it's disgusting horrible and wrong and it's the same i would look at it exactly the same way as you look at pedophilia 
it's obviously pedophilia obviously is worse because there's a person incurring trauma and there's a living person who's incurring a great deal amount of suffering that they might have to live with probably will have to live with for the rest of their damn life so mm-hmm. but it's this for me in terms of who's committing the crime i would imagine that it's very similar and that there's just something in their head that just wasn't wired right and it's actually just terribly unfortunate that they're made that way if you want to use that word made um and so of course the the onus of them not indulging in what their biology is telling them to do which is to indulge in their attraction to younger people that is completely their responsibility and they have to they have to own that despite their desires it's horribly wrong and they they shouldn't do it just because they feel the urge doesn't mean it's um you know they can indulge in it the same way that uh somebody who feels a preference for somebody who's 22 you know it's absolutely different mm-hmm. um so i would say that's probably the same thing that necrophiliacs just have this wire in their brain that just unfortunately and regrettably is wired horribly wrong and they need to seek out help to try to squash those urges here's the problem where where is the help yeah I don't know. It, a therapist for sure. Absolutely. Like, I don't Does, know. Because, I, I mean, okay, so if you're a pedophile, right? Um, for example, maybe even an, a necrophiliac. If you go to a therapist and you say, hey, I'm dealing with these things, and you try and be straight up with that therapist, they're going to call 911 and you're going to go right to jail. Like, that, that's, I don't know that's, if that's necessarily true. I, I, I'd say that's true, bro. Like, I don't think so. <laughs> I'd say that's true, bro. <laughs> I, as as somebody who's been into therapy, it's like the whole um, every therapist that I've been to, immediately before we start our session, they're like, "But just by the way, if you tell me that you're suicidal, I have to call the police and I have to tell your parents and all the, And Wait, I'd assume really? that it's yeah, I'd assume that it's the same for like any other mm-hmm. crime. Like I, I don't, like murdering people. If you're gonna harm your, if you're at risk <laughs> of harming yourself or others, right? Talk about clips that can be taken out of context, Liam. I like oh, murdering people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write down the timestamp for a soundboard. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but no. but you guys get what I'm saying. I mean, like yeah, Jack no, said, it's it's harming you or other people. So. Right. obviously these people can't seek therapy that's a, that's a well, dilemma what are they going to do i think that calls for an advancement in how psychologists or therapists specifically uh how their general agreement on just what are diagnosable problems of the human and this brings up this brings up a really fascinating thing that i'm a huge defender of which is that psychopaths are no worse than people who have depression and that sounds wrong right on the outside but I think we talked about this earlier. Um, the audience obviously hasn't heard it. So basically, if you have depression or any form of clinical mental illness where you're not really hurting other people, but you're extremely toxic to yourself, you're seen as somebody who's ill, mental illness, and you need help. Um, so as far as psychopaths go, it's the same in that their mind is just built differently. So if they have a propensity to harm others, it's just something wrong with their head. It's not their fault that they were born that way. So in a world where there's a pill that they could take, similar to an antidepressant that a depressive that a depressive person could take, 
And we would treat psychopaths very much the same way in that, hey, you want to murder people? We need to fix that. And you know we need to fix that. So here's this medication. How do you feel now? And uh, you know, ostensibly, they would wake up after taking the medication and be like, I cannot believe that I thought like that. And they'd be just as horrified that they thought like that as a depressed per- person would feel you know, sad about the fact that they were suicidal before their medication. And I think the two are just like, in my book, like almost exactly the same. Uh, I hope as a society we can move towards that. And I think we need to bring to attention that because it's it's not something that they choose to pursue, it's just who they are, that could have happened to any one of us. Right. It's, which is even more reason to, to show them compassion and, right. and understand that it's not of their own malicious intent. Yeah. Um, like it, it basically, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't lock them up if they commit a crime or protect the rest of society from them. Of course, it means we right. should take that judicial action. It simply means that we just don't need to hate them. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing. Yeah. So what do you think this whole uprising in the popularity of the stories of serial killers and whatnot has either helped this movement or taken away from it? I would imagine that it's helped, but I mean, I think it's, I would imagine that it helps because people learn what it's, they could see, you know, how complex the story is. Because a lot of these people have suffered an extreme amount of abuse as children. And so they grow up Mm -hmm. with these propensities and these desires that are just what we consider unnatural. But you see the cascade of events that is entirely not their fault, right? They grew up with this emotional trauma, this physical abuse that drove them to commit that same abuse against other people and commit murders. And they're victims of their environment, essentially. And now they've Mm -hmm. made other people victims. So I hope that helps people understand them. But I would imagine that a majority of the viewers just look at them like monsters and just look at them like, oh, how disgusting and gross. Like, can you even imagine thinking about chopping that person's head off or something like that? Like, they just probably enter that mindset. Um, But it's like so crucial as a species and as a community that we don't think like that, that we try to see the Mm -hmm. other perspective. And that's like actually a huge reason why I even started my my podcast and telling the stories I do. We just have to consider other perspectives. It's what makes Mm -hmm. us human. And it's what makes us like the strongest version of human possible where we're coming together as people. Yeah. If I were to, I'm going (laughs) to single a single show out. Um, I think Mindhunter does a really good job of showing mm-hmm. that trauma that the psychopaths go through. Have you seen it? Uh, I've not seen it, but tons of people who know me, pretty much the first thing they recommend to me is that. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely watch it. So add my name to your list. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I certainly will. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I yeah, think so. there are those shows where um, the, the the psychopath is made, made out to be an actual psychopath, right? And that's not necessarily the best part of the show right that's that's obviously portrayed as a bad thing but i've heard not seen but heard a lot of shows that are the complete opposite where the psychopath is made out to be a a really rationally minded person and a very attractive yeah a very attractive person if you will well if you've seen you that's the whole thing basically and and so what do you think about those shows where it's it's not like it's bad but it's almost too normal so this is the whole hypocrisy that really just pisses me off is that this complete 
we have these we have a lot of people in the audience who come not your audience but i'm talking about people who are interested in these topics who um they love to vilify these people and burn them at the stake and not give them any compassion towards what they've been through and then as soon as they see somebody like hannibal or the main character in you they like fall in love with them because they're portrayed as being so sexy and managing their environment well and in control of their of uh this problem they have and it just irritates me to no end because i don't know like juggling those two things having admiration for a fictional character who is the exact embodiment of what real people do and mm-hmm. then hating those real people uh just this something strikes me as kind of gross about that but uh, that being said as characters i love those characters i think they're beautiful um in have the you realm seen of- you no, I haven't, but I've seen a lot of Hannibal. I love Hannibal. Um, in general, I love the whole archetype of like the very clean-cut, organized psychopath. Um, Dexter is a good example. Um, oh, I love Dexter. <laughs> there's just something irresistible about it, uh, I think, because you see them for being human. You know, they're organizing their yeah. life around their, their addiction. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a way, they embody all of the character traits that a protagonist, a hero would have. You know, they're very usually physically fit. They're usually attractive. They're usually uh, resolving some kind of conflict in their life. They, they just happen to kill people. <laughs> and that's really the only yeah. difference. Um, so I think it's a really good way to flex our moral and psychological muscles when we watch these shows. Like, why do I admire this person? Uh, why do I? 